Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. Hello and welcome to the following on podcast from Talk Sport. Special show today as uh, I bring you a book review, Cricketomics, uh, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket by Stefan Szymanski and uh, The Daily Telegraph's Tim Wigmore uh, looking at the book, uh, dissecting some of the uh, chapters and uh, taking a glance through this uh, uh, excellent uh, book that was uh, released a couple of months ago. It's Cricketomics uh, by Tim Wigmore and Stefan Szymanski. And uh, you're listening to the following on podcast. Story of the day. Okay, Tim Whitmore, one of my favourite cricket writers in the biz. Um, I'm delighted to be able to have him on the show as well. He's given me half an hour of his time, three hours before he sets off to Australia, which uh, sounds impressive, but... Dan Norcross from Test Match Special. I was drinking with him until about 11 o'clock the night before he flew to Australia. I reckon, Tim, you're going to be in a better shape than Norcross. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm renowned for being late. So let's hope I'm not so late that I missed this flight. OK, let's get on with it. Uh, Quickonomics. So released um, a couple of months ago. But, uh, well, it's taken me a bit of time. You know, there's a lot of cricket going on. Uh, it took me a little bit of time to get my head around the book, uh, which I have uh, been consuming over the last week or so. And there's a lot to consume, isn't there? And there's, do you know what? There's almost more questions than answers after going through a book like this. First, first off, where do you get the ideas to actually, you know, how do you, it makes sense when you read a passage. I'll give you an example. Um, you looked at the data surrounding attendances in Australia for the best part of, you know, 100 years or so. So what comes first? Are you just rooting through information and data and then you find something interesting? Or do you have a point that you kind of feel is there anyway and then you dig into the data to kind of support it? I mean, how do you even go about coming, yeah, so coming, bit, coming to the ideas to actually put this book together? Yeah, so it's a bit of both. So I was, the, the co-author was Stefan, Stefan Szymanski, who is the co-author of Soconomics, which obviously did, did, did very well. Um, and so the way we sort of did it is, 
he would have some things he, he wanted to sort of answer um, and he would go and do that. And a lot of it, I would kind of come up with loads of really annoying questions and, um, and that would find, and then we'd, we'd, we'd think, can we actually use this to, to show something? And one of, one of, and obviously when, you know, sometimes it confirms stuff, you know, and sometimes it, it does the opposite. Um, and what a really interesting example of that was um, on the ashes, we, we found that Australia is almost as reliant on private schools as, as England are, which I think really blew our mind. But we did, you know, that's what the, you know, we, we trace all the data back to 1945 and it's, it's very clear that that's the case. Um, but that was it's a very sort of surprising yeah. thing. And it kind of bring, bring, brings a new light to the ashes. But then you think of some of the top Australian players, you know, Pat Cummins, Cameron Green, Green and, and various others, you know, they, they went to not just private schools, but very, very elite ones. Yeah, that is interesting because, you know, there is, whether it's a myth or not, I don't know, but there's a feeling that maybe cricket is a middle-class sport in the UK. Um, and Australia is one of the few countries where it's still got a healthy attraction within the working classes. Um, certainly, uh, certainly when you, you sit in the crowds over there, it feels that way at times. But then to be honest with you, I think people do make a mistake of uh, viewing test cricket in this country by just being in crowds at the Oval or Lords, because you could be in the Holly stand or the Western Terrace. And it's very, very different makeup, I think, of, uh, of people there. Um, but yeah, so, OK, so so you kind of hit upon some uh, some areas you want to you want to have a look at. And one of the uh, one of the things that you just may mention, obviously, is a private school leaning. You know, it's a big topic, isn't it? It's a class situation within our country that's quite unique. And um, arguably, nowhere is it more obvious than within cricket, I mean, in terms of major sports anyway, I'm sure. I've never been to a polo match. I'm sure it's there as well. But there is more interest, isn't it? Because it's, it's, um, the, the, uh, the, the data suggests that actually public school boys make up a lot of the batters in international cricket and in English cricket. But actually, the bowlers, they do still come from, uh, well, the same kind of places as Harmy do and, uh, and Goffey. So, so why is that and where does that come from? So this is an amazing thing because it goes back to the very, the very the roots of cricket in the 19th century, where you you would be a landowner and you would. I think you, you would. would I think you would be the landowner. No, no, I think you would be the landowner. You'd be a lazy <laughs> landowner, and you, you'd hire me, your poor labourer, and then you'd be like, oh, wait, "Can you can you bowl at me? I, I want I want a bat, but I'm too lazy to bowl." Um, the bowling, especially fast bowling, is is you know, Goffey is right when he says it's it's hard work. It really is hard work, and so. Um, it's almost go- going back to that. So what? But what's what's happening now? I think I think basically, if you think of nature and and nurture, um, that's probably the best person to think it through. So you think for for bowlers, especially fast bowlers, nature is relatively more important. So if you're if you're six for eight and you have a growth spurt together when you're seventeen, eighteen, that is that is priceless, and that's going to give you something that's so so you know, such such a weapon basically, um, and. And therefore, the advantage you, you you get as a bowler from going to you know an elite school earlier is a lot a lot less because if you you don't have the, the kind of those raw attributes, it's a lot harder to mould you into bowler. Um, whereas nurture is more important for for batters because we, we know and you know batters come in in all sorts. You you know you know guys like Sachin Tendulkar, Brian are on the on the small side. You know you've got K, KP and stuff on the on the much taller side. So it takes all sorts of batters, and therefore, actually, it seems like if you've got a, a bigger potential spectrum of players and then what separates players generally is a bit more nurture, i.e. 
what how how much training do they do what are their coaching facilities and so on and and as a if you go to a, a one of those private schools you can um basically have fantastic facilities you have people to bowl at you you get your laborers to, to bowl at you a, a lot um and that really that redevelops you um so that that's yeah there is a very distinction it's not when people talk about the private schools actually the nuance can get lost it is private school batters generally and and bowlers um bowling is still relatively open open to kind of almost anyone because it the, the talent is so much more important there and uh, the opportunities you have are actually relatively less less important well, I wonder to follow that kind of like train of thought, if uh, the majority of batters are older brothers or sisters and uh, the majority of bowlers are younger brothers or sisters, because, of course, if you're playing against your brother or your sister, it always seems to be the younger one that ends up bowling all day long and, uh, you know, being carted around the field. I mean, actually thinking about that, there was a I mean, there was a study in baseball, wasn't there? It showed that the majority of professional baseballers were born in the first couple of months of the year and essentially the school years over there, there I think, are uh, January to December or something. Essentially, they were born at the start of the of the school year. I mean, is that something possibly that's out there? Is there a, is there a bias in cricket? Do you think for people yeah, yeah. born at the start of the year because just because they're bigger in the year, they get picked up by the PE teachers, they're pushed through the uh, the system, and then well, um, yeah, I mean there is yeah the the, the the relative age effect as it's called. It, it, this is pronounced cricket as well. So generally. There's two things happening. So you get more um, professionals from the sort of first half of the, the the sort of school year because they tend to be bigger and, and stronger. And you have what's called the Matthew effect, where you might you know you know two th- two thirteen year olds, the older one might not really be be better, but because he he looks better because he's eight, eight nine months older, he then gets into the the kind of setup and then he really does become best at the end of it. So that that's an effect. There's also this weird kind of kink called the underdog effect, which is where of the super super elite players, they are more likely to be born younger in their in their year. Um and basically what what's happened so I think 65 65% of England's uh, test records with 50 caps born in the last six months of the year. So the inverse is true. And basically what what happens is the whole system is set up for older kids kids who are born earlier in their school year so it's really really difficult for those for those kids who are younger but if you can somehow those few who can cling on in a system that's basically that's rigged against them almost then because you've had that struggle all along and you've you've been tested more along than when you get to 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 being an adult and suddenly you're not playing against kids who are bigger and stronger than you because you've you've physically matured then you you turn out to be more more chance to be to be better so there's there's two slightly contradictory effects which is which are very interesting yeah, that is interesting. It reminds me of a Mike, uh, Malcolm Gladwell book I read a few years ago. Um, I'm not sure. You always have to wonder a little bit about some of the stuff he puts out there. But essentially he said that um, whilst it is in no way being a benefit to be dyslexic, what you do find is a lot of people who are dyslexic have to come up against such barriers. It's so difficult for them from day one through to the end of their school years that actually they're used to battling their way all the, all the, all the way through. And that actually does them well if they get past the school system and into a uh, professional life okay let's have a look at some of the other t- there's too many topics to go into i mean essentially every single chapter within the book is its own story isn't it it's um so we can't touch on absolutely everything but one of the really fascinating uh, chapters i picked up on was uh, one that you're talking about the barmy army and the point that you made was that very often the uh, uh financial material um, benefits to a country from hosting cricket or any sport 
is wildly overblown. And we hear this whenever England tour to the to the Caribbean. I've been guilty of it, of it as well. Sitting on a beach in Barbados, watching those planes rolling, all full of English tourists with their British pounds, which used to be worth a lot. Um, <laughs> but you you cover there's an incredible stat in here. Tourism in London during the 2012 Olympic Games actually dropped by 6% because more people thought they'd get the hell out of Dodge than actually came to London. So so, so where does the truth lie in all that? Yeah, so you, you, you think of, of going, you know, going to cricket in Barbados, um, which is a wonderful thing to do, but Barbados is also a wonderful place to be anyway. And that, that Barbados is generally not short of tourists, especially in basically tourist season, which is when, when the, the cricket tends, tends to happen. Um, and so this kind of weird effect where in, in the Caribbean, islands basically kind of bid against each other um, for, the, for the right to host marquee matches, you know, England and India mainly, um, because they do say, you know, it, it brings a tourism benefit and it, it does a, a little bit around the edges, but it is overstated because generally the hotels and bars in Barbados in, in February say that they're, pretty much rammed regardless of whether whether there's, there's cricket or, or not um and yeah i suppose if you had so when you have matches in places that people that aren't as popular tourist destinations that's actually more likely to to have a kind of beneficial effect because it kind of put, puts those on the map and there's an element of publicity for islands i'm sure people have seen pictures of Grenada or whatever on, on TV and thought, actually, I'm more likely to go there now, even if, if not for cricket, because it's on. So there are, there are benefits, but in general, that they are um, exaggerated because, of course, it's in the interest because you, you get, you often get the boards, you kind of commission studies showing how great the benefits are and it kind of everyone's scratching each other's backs. Um, and yeah, you do go back to that, that weird thing in the, the Olympics when we had the Olympics and one of the things, you know, we were told it'd be great for tourism, but actually, yeah, we had a, a net reduction to us because, you know, tourists from Paris, they didn't, they didn't want to come to London if they weren't watching the, watch, watching the Olympics. So kind of, it put people, it put more people off than it, it, it drew here. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the bombing army, um, they, they do do a, a, a lot for cricket. They, they're actually, they're valuable. They're certainly, they were, they are valuable is for boards in terms of being able to sell a lot of tickets that that is important. But of course the real value of the Barmy army is the kind of the, the sofa Barmy army um, people who stay, stay at home and, and watch cricket. And that, and that, that's what brings in the sort of broadcasting rights and, and it's why, you know, the, the Caribbean, you know, there's been a lot of England not touring then the ne- next four years FTP. And that's, it's pretty, dis- West Indies are furious and it's pretty disastrous for West Indies. And, to give a, a sense of um, how skewed the economics picture is in, in uh, world cricket, in 2018, West Indies hosted Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, and they made, after their, pro- their uh, profits, they made a net loss of 20 million US dollars. Yes, that's a similar tale that comes out of New Zealand. I think every test they play, they lose half a million dollars. It's not quite that that amount, but still, it, it's a... it's a, Well, it's a lost leader, really, in, in some respects, isn't it? Um, and it's only going to get worse unfortunately um there's a, a fascinating um there's loads of fascinating um chapters there's a there's one comparing new zealand the government i mean it's not often that cricket governance you know a whole chapter it's a very but, sexy topic well you know but at the end of the day when you look at the way that new zealand have gone about their cricket over the last 15 years i mean they you know they they there was an amateur feel to cricket an amateur feel to most sports to be honest with you when you compare it to the broadcast sports world that we've lived in for the last 20 years if you go before that but so what have New Zealand done over the last 15 years that maybe other boards 
haven't and are probably learning from right now? Yeah, so the story of Zena is a great one. You know, until 2000, they were, um, you know, they had a nice period in the in the 80s, but they were one, you know, in the bottom echelons of international you know, cr- cricket, um, you know, fairly easy to ignore. And they, they've been on this amazing run. Their men's team got to three of the last four World Cup finals. They also won the World Test Championship. So they've they've clearly done a, a lot a lot right. And we're trying to look at, at what, what they've done exactly. So um, a, a central thing is they've, you know, they fix their their governance. They actually have independent governance. Um, so they used to have you'd have uh, you have representatives of all all of the the districts in New Zealand. So you get people saying, "Oh, can we make sure there's enough matches in you know my area and so on?" So you don't get decision making that's in the kind of country's best interest. And they they actually they reform they reform that. So actually, they now have independent directors who are, are led by what's best for the game, which is something that. Arguably, you know, West Indies in England, punches of like, like like that can can learn a lot from. Um, they have professionalised their domestic system, which is which is crucial. So you know, they only started professional contracts in 1995 um, in in, uh, in international players, um, and then only in the 2000s did domestic players start getting as well. So you can actually be a professional now and. Uh, maintain that you know, all, all year round and you have other countries so you know Sri Lanka has 26 first class teams so it's a complete complete mess whereas New Zealand they have six they have a concentration of, of talent um, they, they've they've really really big thing they've sorted out the the pitches in New Zealand and the infrastructure so they used to play on t- over 20 grounds a year in domestic cricket so you're playing on like local club grounds and it would be kind of charming and romantic but actually not fit for professional purpose really so they introduced what's called a warrant of fitness, basically criteria for all grounds. Um, and, and what's happened as that's, that's changing. So New, New Zealand went from having very, very low batting averages in first-class cricket because they, these, these pitches were basically green seamers and ball was moving around. To they've, since 2008, they've had the highest batting average of any first-class competition in the world. So that's actually helped to prepare players for test cricket where in general, as we know, the pitches are a lot, a lot flatter. Um, so that's been a crucial thing they've, they've done as well. They've also had a very kind of pragmatic enlightened attitude towards T20 leagues around the world. So we saw, we've seen West Indies have historically lost a lot of players to foreign T20 leagues because they've had rules that, you know, you, you can't play in them during domestic cricket and they've gone to all these rows. New Zealand, right from the get-go, they actually regarded the IPL as an opportunity because they thought, actually, you've got a kid who's really good at rugby and cricket. He now might choose cricket because he can earn more money overall if he gets an IPL gig to go with his New Zealand deal. So that's been a really kind of shrewd, shrewd move. And at the same time, like a lot of countries haven't bled money on their own T20 league. We've seen a lot of countries actually lost a lot of money trying to build their own IPL when there's only ever going to be one IPL because the financial clout of India is, you know, you can't repeat that anywhere else. Um, and I think something England can learn from clearly is a culture that genuinely puts a national team first. So very, very basically, you know, um, New Zealand cricket, they actually pay a portion of each head coach's salary of the domestic teams. And one of the kind of key performance indicators for all the head coaches is developing players for New Zealand. So, you know, a good example, I talked to Mike Hesson, who was New Zealand coach, and and he told me how um, BJ, BJ Watling was playing as an opener for Northern Districts. And he was looking at Watling as potential long-term test wicketkeeper. So he just calls up Northern Districts head coach. And just like that, Watling had suddenly moved down the order and he, take, he takes the gloves and then he does that for New Zealand as well. And there's, there's some other examples as well. So they, they actually get players to play in the exact role they want to 
for New Zealand, which is something that, you know, we saw with Ollie Pope. He'd never batted at three before he batted at three for England. So clearly a pretty basic thing. If England had had that relationship and, made, you know, made sure Pope batted at three for Surrey before, that would probably have, have help, helped him uh, when, it, when it came to doing that, doing that for England. And New Zealand have even... Um, the way they prioritised the national team even meant they reduced their domestic schedule a couple of years ago from 10 rounds to eight to fund more matches for their A-team. And actually, a lot of their players have kind of come through their A-team process. And we're seeing that they've got not just... You've often had teams with four or five very good players, and now they've got they've got real real depth. And then the final thing they do, and not necessarily something that would work for England, but New Zealand used to have a selection committee um, and and then since 2012, they they said actually the head coach should be the, the the chief selector and always get the team they wanted. And what's happened since then, they've had much more continuity in, in selection. So you haven't had chopping and changing. But I suppose yeah, the question is for England, New Zealand is a different cricket culture. You know, it's much smaller smaller pool of players. So there's things certainly there's things you can learn from that. I think the pitches, infrastructure, and the culture put the national team first all very important. But you can't necessarily copy everything because it is a you know it's a different climate they're operating in there but but overall i think that adds up to basically the best aren't in a kind of age of the big three australia and india new zealand have come up with the, the best strategy to work within their, their, their limitations and, and box clever basically and now you know we see consistently we we see a new zealand team now and we expect them to have a certain level of competitiveness really in all formats going to be tricky though isn't it because uh, january which was originally uh you know mainstay of their home summer is given up to the sa20 and the uh, the new uae league so the the uh the juggling as act is going to have to continue especially when you see the likes of jimmy neesham trent bolt connor de home all turning down new zealand contracts so fascinating to see how that goes right i'm really aware of the time so uh, i'm just going to cover one more aspect and then i'm going to give you tim wigmore some ideas for the cricketomics too um, but look, a personal story. 2014, I was at uh, the Maracanã, um, at the, uh, the, the showpiece stadium, really, in Brazil. One of the most famous football grounds in the world, actually. And uh, I was there for the World Cup and uh, I was watching Chile versus Spain. I think it was Chile versus Spain. Either way, it was definitely Chile. And uh, essentially, there's about 65,000 Chile fans in the ground. And uh, the noise and atmosphere when the Chilean national anthem played out was just, just something else. It was incredible. Um, the passion and the fervour and the amount of people that were in that ground to watch a football match. And it just made me realise how narrow, I suppose, cricket is in terms of the narrative. You know, there's, if you were to list the top 20 football teams in the world internationally, Chile wouldn't even be in it. Um, necessarily, maybe if you're South African, South American, it would. But anyway, the point is still there. However... There is hope, isn't there? Outside of the former and current Commonwealth countries, um, we could have a new burgeoning cricket nation, Germany. So how's that come about? Yeah, well, as the, the famous saying goes, cricket is, is a game which 20, 22 players, they, they play with a ball at the end of it. Germany win. Um, <laughs> yeah, they'd be amazing in the bowl off, wouldn't they? Yeah, you, you were not a super over against the Germans. It'd yeah. be an absolute nightmare. Never steal that. Um, so, so what what happened really is, um, so the story of cricket in Afghanistan is where it begins. So, so the story of cricket in Afghanistan that that begins with the the when Soviet Union invade Afghanistan, nineteen seventy nine. That leads to a huge influx of refugees going from Afghanistan to Pakistan and to, to Peshawar. And that's where they, they learn cricket. And, and it begins the major story of Afghanistan, who, as we know, became a test team and produced some of the best players in the world, especially in, in T20. Um, and 
and that created the kind of love for cricket in, in Afghanistan. Um, and then as there's been an influx of refugees now from Afghanistan to Europe, especially to Germany, the um, they have then brought that love for cricket with them to, to Germany. Um, and I think there's been over half a million refugees from uh, Afghanistan in, into Germany. And, you know, I've, I've been there and the, the, they are playing pretty, pretty good standard of, of cricket. Um, and and they, they're getting more and more support from, from the government. Um, and their, their national team is now, you know, they're, they're kind of high up in the European level, which means... Um, you know, they'll have a chance in the European T20 qualifiers. Um, so they're on a level with teams like Denmark now, and, and they've, you know, they'll soon have a chance to play with potentially with teams that are in Scotland. Um, and so there's been, yeah, been, it's been an amazing story of, yeah, of, of kind of how cricket moves. And I think this is kind of always how cricket has grown. So like the first ever South African test team had three players who were born, born in England. So people say, Oh, they're, they're not, they're not real from that country. Well, this is actually always what's happened, especially with migration as it, as it is now. And um, so there's been this, yeah, this fivefold increase in cricket teams in Germany since 2015. Um, and this is a really exciting moment for, um, for, for cricket in, in Germany. And the thing that would really take them to the, the next level is if cricket joins the Olympic games, which, you know, we're hopeful this could happen in 2028. And what would happen then is if you're an Olympic sport, um, you get a huge amount of government funding, several million million euros a year, which would just be transformative for, uh, for, for, for German cricket and actually for cricket in other countries around the world. And Brazil is another one where you get a lot of money from um, being an Olympic sport. And we've seen an amazing story. We've got a chapter on this in the book on what's happened in Brazil, which is they've been... Um, basically the first ever country to give professional the you know, whole squads worth of professional contracts to their women's team before their their men's team and so so something is stirring in in brazil as well so we're seeing cricket actually get to places it hasn't traditionally got to which is very exciting and if and i think through t20 and especially the the olympics there's a, a chance here for the whole footprint of of cricket to, to grow around the world and us to have you know lots of fantastic new new stories of people that we would ever thought of before and you know if we'd be if we'd said you know 15 years ago would be you know the best ball in the world in t20 cricket would be a guy from afghanistan it's now just you know completely not even surprised anymore that would be incredible but that that's what's happened so that just shows what's what's possible um so cricket is an exciting moment where i think if it um shows a bit more uh ambition and, and actually recognizes yeah, that, that there's a there's a chance to build a really a global game for for men and women. Then, then cricket, I think, has a chance to become generally the the number two sport in the world. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including... England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, truly the best place to be a cricket fan. Okay, your cab's going to be here in about. Well, could be here now. Got a couple of uh, a couple of because uh, I'm sure there's going to be a Quickonomics too. Okay, so h- how about these? I'm going to throw the, throw them in there. Um, oh, right, cricket's carbon footprint is cricket the worst sport for global warming than any other sport? when you consider the amount of travel that takes place, not just to play it, but also to cover it. Okay. I'm not expecting an answer, by the yeah. way. You, you've got to give a highly commended to, to, to Formula One, but cricket would be up there. Well, there we go. There's chapter, that's chapter, uh, well, it's going to be a topical. That could be chapter two. Um, drugs in cricket. Yeah. The rise of power and, yeah, and I, speed. I before, we, we are, you know, um, the incentives in T20 cricket are far, far more than in, in the, the longer formats of the game. And I think you wrote an article about this a while back. It may not yeah. be you, but essentially, was, yeah. say a freelance cricketer, who do they fall underneath and how, who checks them? Um, I did a show on TalkSport called The Dive where I looked at drugs in football and I spoke to uh, somebody from WADA. And honestly, mate, it is ridiculous. There is... So much incentive for team sport as well, not just individual sport, to cheat. Um, just a very brief example. As per the rules, say Team A plays Team B in a final of a World Cup final and the striker for Team A scores the goal in a 1-0 win and that striker tests positive for, say, Nandrolone or a, pos- or a performance-enhancing drug, Team A will not be kicked out of the tournament. Anyway, so there's drugs in, drugs in cricket. Um, match fixing in cricket, I still think there's something that, but there's an interesting way. I reckon if you looked at the data and the stats, you could work out which is, I mean, you've got to be careful with the libelous kind of stuff, but if you were to compare every single T20 league, every single individual performance, the fall of wickets, the number of runs scored, all of, and factor in the differences in, in location, you could work out dodgy, uh, dodgy passages at play and be able to say, which league is the most suspicious? You could also go to a betting company and ask them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they, they, they do that and they um, have, have red alerts, which we've seen generally that 
yeah, historically in cricket, you'd only get that on the, the biggest games because that's where the liquidity in the market is now. Um, we're seeing that generally it's sort of tier, th- what I call tier three, T20 leagues. Like, yeah. You know, huge amounts bet on Afghan Premier League and those yeah. sorts of competitions and associate cricket as well. And we actually, we've, we've seen the first approaches in women's cricket as well. So as women's cricket becomes more popular, actually it will become potentially vulnerable because there'll be a lot of money in the market. And one of the key the key drivers generally is when you have players in the same team and some are paid, you know, dozens of times more than the, the lowest paid players and the lowest paid players tend to be pretty resentful, insecure and, and potentially that they're um, right to be, be, yeah, be picked off by fixers. Uh, how will climate change affect cricket? Okay. So and look, we, we how will that knew- change seasons as well? We, because they're very we, we fixed actually, seasons, aren't they? So we actually have in our chapter on weather, we do have, you do, um, section on climate change and and basically so we know that climate change is going to make extreme weather at both ends of the spectrum more more likely and, and we show that we, we actually have yeah show how the weather affects who wins and and basically the the temperature is a is a big driver of of who wins so you when your temperature is is more extreme in either way that tends to benefit the home team so when it's colder in england that's quite a big advantage. And when it's it's hotter in India and England of touring there, that's a big advantage for, for India. And so if we get more extreme weather at both both ends of the spectrum, that that should actually uh help home teams become become more 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 beneficial. Um and we actually show that in 2018 when they played India and they won 4-1, but there were some very tense test matches. That was a very hot summer in June and July. And then as soon as the test started, it it got about 15 degrees cooler overnight. And we, and we, we show that had the, the test series been played earlier in, in the summer um, based on the historic, um, based on historic patterns of how the temperature uh, would, would affect uh, the result that potentially could have been the difference between India winning the series and, and, and not, which, which just shows it's, which one of the variables we've always known it's a variable and we've, we've tried to put a number on it for the first time. Well, there you go. I did read that chapter and so did Ed Smith. I read his review of the book. And um, yeah, one thing... Read it away from the England's 4-1 win. That exactly. Summer. One thing I will say is that whoever had to bat at Lords in that final session on a day that in the history of the game would never, we wouldn't have even had play was going to get bowled out. So I, I, I can see the point. I, I agree with it. That's one of the great challenges, isn't it, of winning away, winning in different uh, climate. But hey, listen, you've got to go. So this is it. This is the number one chapter for the next book, okay? It's a little bit of a what if. But... What would cricket look like if India didn't play it? Well, I reckon it would have rugby around the world. Um, it would be, uh, there'd be a lot less less money in it. It would be a less attractive game. But things like the governance and power structures would also be be, be different. And, well, and I think, yeah. You, that's for you to write. I mean, it's a vast question. But yeah, essentially, would it even be a professional sport if India didn't play it? If it suddenly lost 85% of its money, then maybe well, not. Me and you wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> no, we wouldn't. Mate, you've got to go. Thanks so much um, for uh, for uh, taking the time out before heading off to Australia, where you're going to be covering the T20 World Cup for the Daily Telegraph. But uh, that was uh, Cricketomics, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket by Stefan Shimonsky and Tim Wigmore.
The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you are keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 